Good morning. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Matthew 21. Matthew 21. Today, uh, we are taking a break from our series in Acts to address uh, the important issue of racial injustice and how Christians should respond. Now, to begin with, this is a long introduction. I, I already know this sermon will fail short, and uh, it will fall short in, in so many ways. It'll fail to do justice to the issue. And that is not because God has spoken unclearly to us. Uh, that'll be because of, of time. That'll be because of my own ignorance. That'll be because we're only able to tackle one aspect of this multi-dimensional issue. But none of that should deter us from seeking a biblically faithful response. For the Christian, justice is not a liberal word. Justice is not a political word and justice is not a social word. For the Christian, justice is a scriptural word and it is a biblical word. Justice is an attribute of God, and according to the Bible, it is therefore a responsibility of all those made in his image. Over and over, the Bible speaks out against injustice because it is contrary to the heart of God, and therefore it is contrary to how his people should act. So why speak about this today? Uh, because it is an issue that has once again arrested the attention of our nation uh, with, the, with the recent murder of George Floyd. And um, also in the midst of all that, the incident regarding Christian Cooper uh, all this past week. And it seems that uh, collectively all across the country uh, this week and the incidents, that was the straw that broke the camel's back yet again. And I know that I have been so full and heavy with emotion this week, and I'm sure you have as well. And this comes, of course, on top of an already very stressful, restless three months while we're enduring a global pandemic. We are all emotionally depleted right now. Nobody is doing well. And that's why we need to turn to God's word because God's word does two things. One, it comforts us in our need. And two, it challenges us in the areas where we have fallen asleep. Everything that needs to be said will not be said in this sermon. This sermon is not the definitive end. This sermon is defining the beginning. The beginning of many prayers and laments and conversations and opportunities to come in which we hope to grow and change and seek God's will. Now, this sermon will be longer than usual. I make no apology for that. Uh, please stick with me as we walk into the storm together. But walking into the storm and wading through the issues, it is safe because as we keep our eyes on God and the hope and the promise and the vision of his word, we will emerge on the other side. Now, parents, uh, I will send an email out to you after service with some resources for how you can have this important conversation with your children. Everything happening around us is an opportunity for you to seize, so please do not let it go by. This is the defining moment of your kid's childhood. You have no choice over that. 
but you can choose whether this will be a defining moment in your parenthood. You know, our black friends all around the nation are sitting down with their children, having a very difficult but necessary conversation. You should not sigh a breath of relief because you don't have to. No, you do have to. What you need to have is a very different conversation, but you will also need to sit down with your children and have one. Now, the reality is you may not feel equipped and prepared or ready for this, but you also weren't equipped, prepared, and ready for when you brought your kids home from the hospital, and you've done a pretty good job so far. So you can do this. And lastly, I hope that this week, every community group has either perfect attendance or near perfect attendance as we seek to digest this and process this and pray through this together as a community of disciples. And so with those words, wherever you are, as your act of worship to God, would you stand for the reading and receiving of God's word, which comes to us today from Matthew 21 verses 12 and 13. Friends, hear now the reading of God's holy word. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. And would you join me in prayer once more? Father, would you this morning through your word, show us your heart, show us our sin and show us Christ's mercy. By your spirit, Lord, would you comfort us and would you challenge us? Would you cradle us and would you convict us? Father, would you heal the families of those against whom injustice has been committed this past week? Would you heal all those who wake up every morning in a system of injustice? Would you heal this nation? Would you heal us? And would you do it all for your glory by the peace of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray? Amen. Many of you have seen the horrific video this past week of the murder of George Floyd as recorded by a civilian on the streets of Minneapolis. And some of you haven't, and if you haven't, let me describe to you what you would have seen. A black man in handcuffs laying on the ground while a white police officer has his knee pushed down against his neck. And in the middle of all this, the man begins to cry out, I can't breathe over and over and over again. And his cry for help is interrupted with another set of cries. And that's the cries of the bystanders who are watching this, witnessing this, and filming this take place. You begin to hear their cries directed at the officer. The man can't breathe. Don't you hear what he's saying? Check his pulse. But when I watched the video, there was a third cry that interrupted even the cries on the video. And it was my own cry as I watched this unfold from behind a screen, completely helpless, unable to intervene. But who was I crying out at? I was crying out to the other police officer 
shown clearly in the video who just stood there doing nothing in the face of this heinous act. Now, as an Asian American, I am pretty quick to notice other Asians wherever I go. It is a radar I can't turn off. So I noticed right away that this other officer was an Asian American, and it was at him that my cries were directed. So in fury, in rage, in helplessness, I cried out, why aren't you doing something? Why aren't you helping? How are you standing by? Now, since the release of this video, different people have chimed in with great insight. And one has pointed out that this is a parable of our times. And the parable is simply this. There is an act of injustice being done against a black man. There is a white man responsible for it. And there is a yellow man present with the power to stop it, with a voice to speak, but who stands with his back to it all as if none of it is his concern. It's the posture and attitude of the model minority, the quiet, submissive, don't rock the boat, don't get too involved, the posture and attitude. And as my anger began to surge in me over what this officer should have done, I heard very clearly the words of the prophet Nathan speaking to me as he did to David. You are the man, Andrew. You are guilty of the same thing. And so this week has been uh, emotionally very difficult for me. And part of that has to do with the conviction and the awareness of my own sin. And so I repented. Now, in what ways am I also guilty Well, I've repented of all the times that I didn't use my voice. Of all the times that I chose not to rock the boat because I didn't want to get a little seasick and ruin my day. I've repented of how I've tried to absolve myself of any responsibility by claiming over and over, well, I'm not racist. I'm not responsible. Maybe these are some of the things that you have told yourself as well. And if that's you, I invite you into this same repentance. Now, I repented borrowing the words of a statement uh, released by the Grace and Race Ministry at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, in which they wrote, we repent of the ways that we as Christians have far too often failed to adequately stand against the evil of racism and violence, diminishing its severity adverting our gazes and even perpetuating such injustice deliberately or complicitly. Friends, you may not be a racist, but being not a racist is not enough. It may be 100% true, but it is not enough. And here's why. Because the Lord does not look only at the sins of commission, Meaning the Lord does not only look at the wrongs that we have done. The Lord also considers the sins of omission, the good and justice that we have failed to do. And so that's why I repented. And that's why I invite you into that same kind of repentance as well. Now, what I want to talk about today is not only focused on the events of this past week, because the issue, of course, is so much bigger than just a few incidents. 
The reason I lost it this week and the reason maybe some of you lost it too is because it seems to us that the stories come one after another in an unending onslaught that reminds us racial injustice cannot be swept under the rug as they occur one incident at a time. The other was the realization that these Incidents aren't more prevalent now than they were before. The only thing more prevalent now is the recording of these incidents. The only thing more prevalent now is the uploading of these incidents. You know, the stories this week of Christian Cooper and George Floyd, they are just what's up next on the newsfeed that just weeks before reported the story of Ahmaud Arbery. And a few weeks before that reported the story of Breonna Taylor and so on and so forth as we can continue to look at the history of such things. And honestly, add to that personally as Asian Americans and many of us in this congregation are, add to that all of the increased reports of anti-Asian racism all throughout our country the past three months because of the coronavirus. And all that did for us Asian Americans is give us a very, very poor and narrow snapshot of the everyday experience of our black neighbors. And personally, it hurt even more as a result of that. The fact is, it stings so much for us because these days the wounds are always so fresh. There never seems to be enough time elapsing in between accounts for a scab to ever form. There is no scar to heal because the wound is always being pressed and pricked. And so the soul is weary. The soul is tired. My soul is weary. My soul is tired. And so what do you do in response? How do you cope with the process all of this? Because you need to process. You need to think through You need to respond. A non-response, friends, is a response. Now, again, speaking to our majority Asian American congregants, we have been shown a strategy of response and coping by our immigrant parents and what they did. Their strategy was simple. You put your head down, you tune things out, you take care of yourself and your family, you don't worry about others, you work really hard, you strive to be the best, and you'll get through this unscathed. That's what we've seen modeled before us, and therefore it is so tempting to adopt that for ourselves. To walk in their footsteps, to follow their lead, that's the way of least difficulty. But there's another way a more biblical way, and that's the way of righteous anger. Now, righteous anger means cross-bearing. Righteous anger requires dying to yourself. Righteous anger is not the wide path, it's the narrow road. Because feeling righteous anger means that you look at all of the injustices taking place in God's world among God's image bearers, and it says you must deal with this. And so to actually deal with it, not to simply suppress it or brush it off or dismiss it, but to actually face the things that are going around us is draining It is tiring. It is frustrating. It is confusing. It does weary the soul. But it's also an anger that is right for the people of God to feel. 
because it is the same kind of anger that God himself adorns in his majestic holiness. Righteous anger is the garment that God himself does put on. I don't like feeling angry. I know it may seem like it now. I'm just passionate. Righteous anger, we often have a hard time distinguishing from anger. And anger doesn't look good on me. It doesn't look good on anybody. It's like when you go into a store and you see something on display on the mannequin and you think it looks nice and you go to the dressing room and you put it on and you realize this does not look good on me. The size, the shape, the cut, the color. For a lot of us, anger does not look good on us and it should not look good on you. But there is a garment a distinct garment that does look good. It does suit you because it suits God. And that, friends, is righteous anger. That's what we're looking at and considering today in Matthew 21. Here's our gospel truth. Righteous anger at injustice is good and godly for the Christian. Righteous anger at injustice, directed at injustice in this world, is good. And it is godly for the Christian. Our text today in Matthew 21 begins with Jesus's entry into Jerusalem. This is the Sunday before his crucifixion. We know it as Palm Sunday when Jesus enters the city on a donkey and all are crying out, Hosanna in the highest. Now, Matthew records that as soon as Jesus entered into Jerusalem, that he then entered into the temple. And so that's where verse 12 picks up in our text. Read with me verse 12, where it says, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Now, although the words aren't used here to describe Jesus' actions, his actions clearly display and show his emotions. I have never seen a man drive people out, overturn tables, and flip over chairs in a calm and collected fashion. Jesus is righteously angry here. And in fact, the apostle John, when he records this event or event similar to it, we're not sure if it's the same one or a different one, but in John chapter 2, he writes, And making a whip of cords, he, Jesus, drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. You know, John, in his record of this story, adds more details that describe Jesus's righteous anger. It's clear Jesus is not okay with whatever he sees going on here, that he's visibly upset. And Jesus doesn't suppress his anger because compassion and being calm and being collected is more Christ-like. It wasn't more Christ-like to show no anger in this situation. In fact, it was the very opposite. It was more Christ-like to be worked up in righteous anger. Again, when John records this event, he quotes Psalm 69 verse 9, where he says, zeal for your house will consume me. Right? Jesus is fulfilling this psalm, meaning Jesus is, he's passionate. He's zealous for God and his justice, which makes him even more righteously angry when he sees the injustice for what's going on. Now, of course, for us, we know the Bible makes it clear that Jesus never sinned, never. Meaning then that the anger Jesus experienced and evidence in the temple was not sinful anger. You see, it's hard for us to understand that difference because 
Almost always the anger we feel is a sinful anger. Stub your toe, get caught in traffic, kids aren't listening, spouses don't do what they say they're going to do, a friend breaks a promise. All of this leads to sinful anger. And we have a hard time parsing, splitting, distinguishing between the two. But the Bible makes this very important distinction. Because on the one hand, there is an anger that is wrong, that is sinful. Ephesians chapter 4. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Colossians 3. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Galatians 5. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. James 1.20. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So on the one hand, we have all of these clear biblical teachings that anger is not right. There is a sinful anger. And yet, on the other hand, we get this command in Ephesians 4.26. Be angry. And do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. There is a type of anger that is righteous and good and godly. And that's exactly what Jesus experienced and evidence in the temple, Ephesians 4:26. Now remember the context of Ephesians. Ephesians is written for the Christian. This is Paul's words to Christians, meaning that he's actually saying to Christians, you can be righteously angry. But what's the determining factor of righteous anger? If you go to a restaurant and you order a steak medium rare and they bring out a steak medium well, do you have the right to flip over tables, overturn the chairs because you are righteously angry? Well, no, you do not. Why? Because righteous anger isn't for when you don't get your way. Righteous anger is reserved for when God doesn't get his way. There's a clear distinction that we need to understand. And so Jesus is exhibiting this kind of anger. But why? And Jesus explains why he is righteously angry in the next verse. In verse 13, it is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Jesus's anger is directed at the injustice that is taking place before him. Now let's flesh this out. Everything taking place in the temple is happening because there were Jews and God fears from all over the Roman empire who would flock into Jerusalem to worship and to pray at the temple. And of course, if people are traveling that far of a distance, it is highly unrealistic to expect them to bring their own animal sacrifices with them during their travel. The task would just simply be too hard. And this also explains why there are money changers because you need them to change and to exchange for the proper currency. It's like when you travel to another country, you need to go to the bank to exchange your money. So for these worshipers to give proper tribute, they needed to exchange the money. Now, Jesus' problem and his anger here is not directed at the fact that there are money changers and that there are those selling animals. It's at the manner of the practice, the injustice of their dealings. Because first of all, this commerce was not taking place outside of the temple. It's taking place inside of the temple. Now, the temple had many different courts, if you're familiar with it. The innermost court of the temple was the Holy of Holies. Only one person, the high priest, could go and enter into there. And then after that, there are different gradations of courts. And so then you have 
um, the holy place, which is where the other priests are allowed to enter. And then outside of that, you have the general court that all the Jewish men could enter. And then outside of that, you had uh, the court of women where the women could enter. And then the last and most outer court was the court of Gentiles. This is where all non-Jews could come, congregate, worship, and pray. And so where do you imagine all of this commerce was taking place? Well, it wasn't taking place outside of the temple for Jesus entered the temple and saw it. It wasn't happening in the holy place or the most holy holies. Where was all this taking place? This was taking place in the court of the Gentiles. Meaning that because of all of this commerce taking place, the Gentiles had no place to worship God. They had no place to pray. So when Jesus says in verse 13, he says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. He's actually quoting there. It is written. He's quoting Isaiah 56 verse seven, which says more fully for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Jesus is quoting Isaiah that's saying the house of prayer is for all peoples, meaning that God's original vision of the temple was to be a place where Jew and Gentile alike would come and gather and worship and pray to him. So by conducting business in the outer court, the Jews were unjustly preventing the Gentiles from worshiping God. Essentially, they were saying, you Gentiles and your worship, it is less significant, less valuable, less important than ours. But God had called them to worship him he had called them to pray to him too. And so Jesus responds to this great act of injustice and righteous anger. How dare you consider the Gentiles any less than you? Secondly, then Jesus goes on to quote Jeremiah 7, 11, where Whereas when Matthew writes in verse 13, but you make it a den of robbers, Jeremiah says, uh, similarly, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes. Now the question is, why does he refer to the sellers and the money changers as robbers? Most likely because these people were unjustly raising the exchange rates and severely overcharging for the animals. Now, of course, there is a difference between making a little bit of profit and exorbitant and excessive exploitation. You feel this every day in your own life. Take, for example, buying a soda. If you go to a place like Costco, you can buy one of those large packs of soda, at which point each can comes out to 25 cents. If you go to a grocery store, you buy a 12 pack, you do the math, each can comes out to about 60 cents. Well, you know, then if you go into a convenience store to buy a bottle of soda, even though a bottle's slightly bigger, the price will now jump up to about $2. It's a bit high, but it's okay. Then you go to a movie theater and a cup of soda is like $8 and it gets pretty crazy. But even that is nothing compared to when you go to Disney World where soda costs the same amount as the airplane ticket it took to get you to Orlando. And knowing how much a, a soda should be it causes anger in you. It surfaces and you end up saying things like, these guys are thieves and robbers. Now, when Jesus comes and he says that this is a den of robbers, he's accusing them of injustice. But more than that, very specifically, Jesus is saying you're committing injustice against a certain group of people. Here's, here's why and here's how. When John tells the story in John chapter two, he says Jesus is casting out oxen and sheep. 
When Luke tells the story, Luke doesn't tell us which animals. But when Matthew and Mark tell the story, they only mention pigeons. And that's a very important detail. Because most people, many people sacrificed oxen and sheep. But do you know who sacrificed pigeons? It was the poor. So Leviticus 5 verse 7 says, But if he cannot afford a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed two turtle doves or two pigeons. Pigeons were the provisions made for the poor who couldn't afford a more expensive animal. And so when Matthew mentions specifically that they were selling pigeons, he is highlighting the injustice in the temple being directly affecting the poor. The sellers were taking advantage of them. And so here's the picture that Matthew's painting for us. Jesus walks into the temple and he sees the injustice taking place before him. An injustice against the Gentiles and an injustice against the poor. And he gets righteously angry. And it's important for us to realize the context of what's going on. Because if we are then to imitate Jesus Christ, if our lives as Christians is about conforming into the image of Jesus, becoming more and more like Jesus in our everyday lives, then it means for us Christians that it is also good and godly for us to get righteously angry at the injustices we see around us. You see, so many times we try to relegate these kinds of matters, matters of justice and injustice to a social issue. But put in this sense that I'm sharing with you that mercy and injustice or or justice and injustice is not a social issue. You know what it is? It's a sanctification issue. Because if the Savior in whose image you are being conformed is a God who gets righteously angry at injustice in the world, then the degree to which you are being sanctified and conformed into his image is the degree to which you are getting righteously angry at injustice in the world. You cannot separate the two. Sanctification is, or justice is a sanctification issue. Now all of that, you apply all of what we see in Matthew 21 and you apply it to our context today. And there are so many injustices in our nation. But the one that none of us could ignore at this very moment is racial injustice. And because of that, the church simply cannot turn our eye from it. And so how should Christians respond? It seems more godly. It seems more humble to be passive, silent, to pray privately, to lament privately, to not get involved. Oh, there's a distinction between church and state. No, no, no. Our passage is showing us that it is good and godly for Christians to feel righteous anger if it leads them to right actions concerning it. In fact, I would say this, righteous anger that eventually leads to right actions draws you closer to the heart of God because it is from the heart of God that justice originates. You actually understand God's heart more, more clearly. It becomes more familiar, more intimate to you, the more in which your heart gets righteously angry at the same things that get his heart righteously angry. Now to get the full impact of our passage, you need to consider its wider context. Right? Think about everything that's happening in Jesus's life at this point. Right? We said at the beginning of chapter 21, he is entering Jerusalem at the day of of, um, Palm Sunday. And he knows that the cross is before him. He knows at the end of his week, 
is the end of his life. In chapter 20, the one chapter before, he had already foretold his death. He knew what was coming. He knew what Jerusalem held before him. So Jesus said to his disciples in chapter 20, verse 18, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death. You see, Jesus knew what Jerusalem had for him. And so he entered Jerusalem marching toward the cross. He had his mind singularly fixed on the cross because he knew what he must accomplish for his people. And yet in the midst of all of this, in the midst of thinking about his coming crucifixion, the end of his life being slain for people who would, who, who, who when, he, when, when he entered the room were saying, crown him, crown him, a couple days later saying, crucify, crucify him. He knew entering the city where he would end up. And yet in the midst of all of that, he ended up in a temple to address, condemn, and correct the injustice there. And the question is why? Why would Jesus bother himself with this? Didn't he have so much more on his mind? And maybe you can wonder, well, maybe it's because he had so much in his mind, he needed to get his mind off of it. But the answer is neither of these things. Why did Jesus, knowing that his mission in entering Jerusalem was to end up on the cross at Calvary's Hill, why then did he enter into the temple? And it's because of this. Going into the temple is directly related to what would happen at Calvary's Hill. Let me explain. In the temple, what did Jesus do? In the temple, Jesus upheld the justice of God while condemning the injustice of sinful men. He upheld the justice of God while condemning the injustice of sinful men. And all of that was pointing to what Jesus would do in his death. Because on the cross, what did Jesus do? On the cross, Jesus upheld the justice of God while being condemned for the injustice of sinful men. You see, the confrontation in the temple foreshadowed the crucifixion on the cross. Jesus did not condemn you as justice demanded for your sin. Rather, Jesus chose instead to be condemned for you so that you could receive the mercy and forgiveness of God. Do you see this? God was so concerned with upholding his justice, so passionate, so zealous to uphold his justice that in order to forgive you and restore you, he didn't simply let that justice go. He didn't compromise on that justice. He upheld it, meaning that in order to forgive you and restore you, that justice was executed on his son. It was directed at his son. And so Jesus to us then is slain as a sacrificial offering. He is slain for us as the oxen, as the lamb, as the pigeon. Not as one purchased in the temple, but one freely given to us from heaven. You see, God's love for you did not lead to God ignoring his justice. God's love for you led to him displaying his justice. A justice that was executed on his one and only son so that you could then be spared and welcomed into his family. You see, this is what the gospel is telling us. This is what Jesus did for you. And when this gospel sinks deep into your heart, it cannot but change you. That Jesus did not condemn you, but he was condemned for you so that justice, not injustice, could be upheld. And if you believe this gospel, two things begin to happen. Two things. First, the gospel gives you the desire to condemn injustice. 
If you believe the gospel, your heart will begin to change and desire to condemn injustice. How? How does this happen? Because the death of Christ shows you how much God hates injustice. How much does he hate it? He was willing to slay his own son. Therefore, if you believe that, you then condemn injustice in all of its shapes and forms. Here's the second thing the gospel does. The gospel gives you a desire to contend for justice. How does this happen? Because the cross shows you how much God loves justice, how much he upheld it by slaying his one and only son for you. Therefore, if you believe this gospel, you will contend for justice wherever and however it is called for. Friends, when this grips your heart, it should be gospel-centered, Jesus-following Christians who are the strongest and most courageous advocates for justice in our society, not the weakest and most timid. You know, historically in America, Christians have got this point. They understand this point, but they've only applied it well to one issue. Christians apply the issue of justice very well to abortion but historically have applied it very poorly to the issue of racism. You know, why is that? You know, for some reason we have said advocating against the injustice of abortion is biblical, but advocating against the injustice of racism is social. You know, my hope is that we begin to see as Christians, both are equally affronts against the image of God, offensive to our Lord. And friends, if you're not afraid to speak up for the unborn living, then you certainly should not be afraid to speak up for the born living. So friends, for those of you who feel righteous anger over all of the racial injustice you see taking place, do not suppress it. Do not squash it. It is not unchristian of you to feel such anger. To suppress it and to squash it often leads to further silence. And a kind of let's not get too involved passivity that is unhelpful to the world, antithetical to the gospel, and shows not Christ likeness, but unchrist likeness. Ann Voskamp wrote this week When we remain silent in the face of injustice, we loudly slap the face of God because the person being abused is the face of God, made in his very image. Friends, it is good. It is godly to feel righteous anger that leads to right actions. It means your heart is becoming more and more like God's. That's Psalm 7 verse 11 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Indignation, righteous anger every day. Because every day there is injustice in the world. Now I submit this to those of you who feel no righteous anger over the things happening around you. I submit and I ask that you pray and plead with the Lord to stir your heart and awaken you from your slumber. Ask him to awaken that slumbering part of you to be conformed more and more into his image because God has made himself and his will clear to us in his word. 
How much clearer can the Lord be? Psalm 33, verse five, he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Proverbs 21, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Isaiah 1, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Jeremiah 22, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. Amos 5, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Micah 6, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Over and over again, the scriptures cannot be more clear. What is the heart of God? So friends, if you are looking at injustice and there is not unrighteous, there is not righteous anger being stirred, I submit before you, plead and ask the Lord to stir that in you. Because if it is good and godly to pursue in to pursue justice, if it is good and godly to pursue justice, then it must be good and godly to get righteously angry when there's injustice. Because when it comes to injustice, an apathetic response is a pathetic response. You must believe this is a Christian. When it comes to injustice, an apathetic response is a pathetic response. And although saying nothing and doing nothing is far more comfortable and convenient, that is not our calling. Our calling is costly because it is Christ-like and it is the way of the cross. Now, I do not imagine for one second that the task is easy. As a church, as a pastor, as a Christian, there is so much to speak against. There is so much to speak to. There are so many to speak for. And it's easy to feel so overwhelmed by it all. But we hold on to what we know to be true. And that is that our Savior saw injustice and he did not sit passively and silently fuming but his righteous anger led to right actions as he did something about it. And as we pattern ourselves after him, then our righteous anger over injustice must lead to right actions. Now, what right actions can we do? Here are eight things, eight things justice, loving, righteously angry Christians can do. Number one, repent. Repent of what you see in yourself. Repent of the things you have done and repent of the things you have failed to do. Repentance is humbling, but it's where healing begins. Repent. Two, lament. Lament over what you see around you. Join in solidarity with those for whom injustice is not merely occasional in their life. Injustice is their ordinary life. Lament with them. Three, listen to and learn from the voices and experience of others. Don't presume to be the teacher, but be the humble student. Listen and learn. Four, speak up for justice and speak out against injustice because everybody is made in the image of God and therefore valuable and significant. Five, model for the watching world that following Jesus means condemning injustice and contending for justice because you are made in the image of God, a God who loves 
justice. Number six, teach your children that it is heroic and strong to stand up and stand with those even when it is costly. And teach your children that it is cowardly and weak to turn a blind eye or dismiss what's happening around them. Number seven, pray. Pray for God's work in this world because ultimately it is sin that blinds and darkens our hearts and our minds, both in the believer and the unbeliever. And the only way forward is healing through Christ's blood-bought reconciliation. So pray. Number seven, long. Long for the day when God comes with final justice to right every wrong in this world so that justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. You know, as we close, rather than ending with a song of response, we are going to have an extended time of prayer as we pray in response. So friends, please take a few minutes and however the Spirit of God is leading you, respond to God in prayer. That may be leading you to repentance to lamenting, to asking for courage and boldness, to committing and resolve certain actions to him and before him, standing in solidarity with those who every day suffer under this injustice. Whatever it may be, friends, I encourage you, let us respond now in prayer before the Lord.